as we do get going, I do want to uh, just send a greeting uh, to my friend Chaz. I know that uh, he listens to these sermons every week, so he'll be listening to this sermon next week. But, you know, when I wake up in the morning on Sunday, uh, usually I'm getting ready, and just before I leave, Christina will will shoot me Chaz's messages because he's he'll, he'll be messaging her about my sermon from the week before and and uh, giving his commentary on it and uh, and I always appreciate it Chaz is listening and and uh, and I really appreciate his insights so I love you Chaz and I'm glad that you are listening to these sermons today we continue our look uh, into the book of Daniel and we're in Daniel chapter 2 and as it's been read to you it's a very long um, chapter this morning, but a, a, a single story uh, going on in Babylon. As we come back to this, it's important that we remember the context. We're not merely studying a, uh, a historical section of the Bible, though it is that. Israel has been literally dragged out into exile. Um, the, the able young men, those who seem like they have some gifts and abilities, those who seem to be wise, um, are are cut off from the, the herd, if you will, and brought in to be tested. And Nebuchadnezzar is looking for the best uh, to be put in his service as he conquers a people. And Daniel and his friends uh, are a few of these guys. And you'll remember that Daniel, as we mentioned earlier, uh, is a, a young man, maybe 15 years old, but a young man filled with wisdom, a gift from God. So much so that he senses in a moment where it would be a no-brainer to me. I mean, I'd be so pumped to be able to eat the king's food as a slave. I'd be thinking, okay, this is, you know, maybe I can navigate my way through this whole slavery thing. Uh, this seems like a good start. I get to eat at the king's table, you know, that's a good thing. Um, and Daniel has the wisdom to abstain from that, lest he become addicted to the delicacies of Babylon, and in so doing, become a Babylonian. Settle in, if you will. Daniel balances this contentment with being in Babylon because he knows this is where the Lord has taken him. Remember, right at the beginning of the book, as we looked at, we have those two things. Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem, but the Lord gave Jerusalem, uh, Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's, it's those things. And Daniel is able to see in the siege, not only bad foreign policy and, and bad decisions by the kings, but he's able to see the hand of the Lord. And therefore, he knows he's there by the hand of the Lord. And that means certain things. That means I've got to hunker down. That means I've got to be faithful where the Lord has planted me. And he's planted me in Nebuchadnezzar's office, and that's what I need to do. But at the same time, Daniel does not lose his identity. Daniel understands that he is in exile. He's not transplanted to a new home. He is in exile. And this is a temporary home, but it's just that it is temporary. This is not where I belong in one sense. And that is a balance that you and I have to have. The application here for us is strong, and we, we must continually apply this to ourselves because we all live in Babylon, not because we live in America, but because we live in this age, this Babylonian age, that once we left the garden, if you will, of Eden, we entered Babylon. And we had to navigate our way now 
in being faithful while, if you will, having a hostile power over us. The ruler of this age, even. Um, the principalities and powers that rule over us. What does it mean to be a faithful American and a faithful Christian? Because sometimes those two things seem to run in, at odds with one another. American values and Christian values. And if you're not careful... If you are not careful, you will lose the ability to distinguish between the two. The lines get blurred and we can't tell anymore. It seems like to be a good American is to be a good Christian, kind of. So we have to be careful of this. And Daniel is, is a valuable source for us to challenge us and to provoke us. And I think the challenge we got last week with the food was just such an occasion. Now, today... Daniel is now in the, in, in chapter two, Daniel is in the service of the king and he's doing his thing and he's, he seemed to be a reliable man. He's been promoted and, and in the, in, on the team, if you will. He made, he made the cut and he's on the team. But today we come to this moment where Nebuchadnezzar is kind of rousted in his sleep by an awful vision or dream. And he's very bothered by it. And it turns out the dream is a dream of this colossus, this amazing figure, this like, uh, you know, a, a huge statue, like a transformer, um, uh, that bothers him. It's, it's made up of these different metals, the gold head, the silver chest, the bronze thighs, the iron legs, uh, and a stone that comes and hits it and breaks it all to pieces. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is very shaken by this vision, by this dream. And, and he, it makes no sense to him. He doesn't know what he's looking at. He just knows it seems significant. And it's clear enough that it's not just a dream like you and I have. A dream that when you wake up, you can't quite remember the details on, and it was fuzzy, and people, you can't believe, what was that person doing in my dream? Like, how'd that person pop in there? I haven't thought about that person in 20 years. I was in there in my dream. Uh, what's going on there? And what were we doing in that place? And it's just, you know, not that kind of dream. This is a dream of like supreme clarity, and he's bothered by it. So what does he do? Well, he does what any king would do. He calls in all his wise people. Get me the people who know about this stuff. Give me the soothsayers. Let me say, what do we got out there? Let me, give, me, give me the soothsayers, the wise men, the magicians, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Get those guys in here. I want to talk to them. And he brings them in, and he says, now, guys, listen. This is why you exist, okay? This is, your, this is your game time right here, okay? I had this dream last night, and it's really bothering me. Uh, and I would like you to tell me what it is and tell me the interpretation. And they're like, man, they're, they're just like, great. Yeah, this is why we exist. Awesome. Uh, tell us the dream, and uh, we'll, we'll be happy to conspire, and we'll, we'll come up with the interpretation for you. And, and Nebuchadnezzar says, no, 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 I don't think you heard me right. I'm not asking you to tell me the interpretation. I'm asking you to tell me the dream. You tell me the dream. And that way, I know I can trust your interpretation. And you give Nebuchadnezzar some credit here because he knows, you know, when you've got yes men working for you, you know, it's very tempting for them to, you know, say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, well, let me tell you, you know, this dream means that you are going to grow. <laughs> you know, you're going you're to be this amazing figure. You know, like they're going to tell him an interpretation that makes him feel awesome. And Nebuchadnezzar, but something was niggling him. Something was bothering him that he felt like there was something else he needed to hear here. And he did not trust his wise men to give him the straight shot. 
So he puts them to the test. Tell me the dream first. Then I will know that I can trust your interpretation. That's pretty, that's pretty savvy by old Nebuchadnezzar. And they're completely flummoxed. And, and they, they kind of, I think they're starting to get itchy, you know, and they, they really hold their ground like, Nebuchadnezzar, we hear what you're saying. Not a problem. Just tell us the dream. You tell us the dream. We'll tell you the interpretation. And he said, okay, you guys are clearly not understanding what I'm saying, but let me put it a little more clearly for you. Either you tell me the dream and then the interpretation, or I'm going to turn all your households into an ash heap and I'm going to kill you all. I'm going to dismember you all. <laughs> Leave your body parts scattered around my kingdom. Okay, so those, those are the two options. Either tell me the dream and the interpretation or it's over for you. And now at this point, they do understand. And, but they're, com they're completely frazzled by this. Their hair's on fire. And because they know this can't happen. And they confess that to him. They go, but Nebuchadnezzar, you're asking us something that no one can do. There is no one on earth that can do this. In fact, the only one who could ever do this is the gods, but they don't dwell with us. Now, again, in some sense, they're undermining their whole institution here. Like, well, what, what do I have you guys here for? If you don't have, if you don't have a, a, a pipeline to the gods, that's why I hire you. That is why you're on my payroll, because you guys are supposed to have this. And now you're running around going, this is impossible. We can't do this. We, only the gods know this, and they don't dwell with us. I mean, immediately, they should have all been fired right there. That's the end of it. So he says, well, that's fine then. And I guess that's essentially what he does, because he says, all right, um, hey, Ariok, uh, kill them all. <laughs> kill, kill every one of them. Go round up everyone that is even part of my, my team that at all we thought was wise before and kill them all. And so Ariok goes out and he starts rounding them up. And, you know, they come knocking on Daniel's door and, and they say to Daniel, um, you're going to need to come with us because um, uh, you've been ordered to be killed along with everyone else. And Daniel says, well, what? What's going on? What's, what's, have, what's the urgency? And he tells him, and Daniel just leaps out in faith and, and says, well, hold on a second. Um, tell the king that uh, I will let him know what it is. But Daniel doesn't know. But he just says, tell the king, I'll, I'll talk to him and I'll bring it to him. And so, okay, they wait to see what happens. And then immediately once Ariok leaves, Daniel like scoots out of his house and runs over to the other guy's houses and tells them, hey, boys, you got to stop what you're doing and get on your knees right now and pray. Pray that the Lord would show favor to us, that he would grant insight to us to tell us what the heck this dream is or else we're going to die with all of them. So who knows, right? Let's, let's just lay it before the Lord. And if it's the Lord's will that we're just going to die here, okay, but but perhaps it's his will that he'll tell us the, the dream. So those guys hit their knees, and they begin praying, and that evening, Daniel is given a vision, a, one of his night visions. And in this vision, he sees the whole thing clear as day, and the interpretation is given to him. And Daniel launches, again, there's such a, Daniel is such a model for us, uh, 
in verse 20, he launches into praise. Once he gets this, uh, verse 19, then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And we're going to hear this again with Daniel. Because when Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, he confesses right off the bat. I mean, you have to give the kid credit. It's really a chance for self-promotion here. I mean, you're, you're, you're basically going to get whatever you want when you, I mean, if you're Daniel, you're thinking, nobody could do this. Like, nobody in the entire kingdom could do this. And I'm about to walk in and give the king something no one can give him. And Daniel, Daniel just deflects right off the bat deflects and gives glory to God. He says in verse 30, but as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. It's not that I'm better than those guys. It's just that the Lord, who is the giver of wisdom, that's what he says in here. And Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever, for wisdom and might are his. Whatever wisdom I have is given to me from God. He is the fount of wisdom. And if I have wisdom and insight on this, it is only because of God. If I have might and power, Nebuchadnezzar, you have might and power, it is because of the Lord. So Daniel launches into praise at this point. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. And again, think about Daniel in this moment. Here you are in exile. You've just watched your king be flattened. And you've watched Nebuchadnezzar be raised up. And once again, Daniel has the eyes to see and the heart to believe this is of the Lord. He's the one who changes the seasons. There was a season in which Jerusalem was prospering, and now Jerusalem is utterly destroyed. There was a time when the kings of Israel were reigning, and now they are enslaved, and Nebuchadnezzar is reigning. And it is his sovereign authority that does it. Daniel would much rather be back in Jerusalem than here, but he recognizes it is from the Lord. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells in him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to me a note made known to us the king's demand. So Daniel and the boys hit their knees in prayer. That is to say, they do what ought to be done first, which, if you're like me, does not tend to come first. I'm a, Let me figure out how to solve this stinking problem first. But these guys recognize immediately, and maybe it's because where else could you possibly go? They went to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord graciously answered them. So he goes to Ariok and says, hey, get me to the king. I've got... I know the dream. I know the dream and I know the interpretation. It's sure. Bring me to the king. So Ariok brings him to the king and then, you know, claims a little bit of credit. Now, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, I have found a man. I have found Ariok. Ariok's trying to save his own head here as well. I have found a man who is able to do what you have asked. You know, <laughs> he throws the I in there. And of course, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wants to put it to the test. Okay, tell me the dream. And then I'll see whether you can tell me the revelation and uh, the, uh, the, the interpretation. And Daniel, of course, answers and gives that which none of the astrologers, soothsayers, 
magicians, sorcerers, or Chaldeans could possibly give. And this brings us to the vision itself, to the, to the dream. The dream is of a statue, this mammoth statue. And, he, and Daniel describes it apparently to a T. So much so that there's no doubt in Nebuchadnezzar's head, you, wow, you have been given wisdom um, because you've nailed it completely. It's a statue with four metals in it. The head is of gold, the chest of silver, the midsection, the thighs, and the hips are bronze, the legs, iron. But at the base of the statue, the iron mingles with clay and therefore at its very foundation, it is weak and susceptible to being toppled. And then, lo and behold, it is toppled because a stone that comes from the mountain but is not cut by human hands, a stone uncut by human hand comes, <laughs> rolls, comes over, however it gets there, and smashes the whole thing to bits. And the whole statue comes down, and then we're told, and the wind just drives it all away. And he names every part, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, and the clay vaporized. And the dust just scattered to the wind. And then the stone grows and becomes a mighty mountain. Having given the dream that way, Nebuchadnezzar's all ears. <laughs> you know, all ears on the interpreter. Whatever Daniel says now, I'm going to trust that that's the interpretation because, man, you really nailed it. And Daniel says, yeah, you can take it to the bank because what I'm going to tell you is certain and sure. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Well, <laughs> that's a nice way to start. That felt good to hear. You're the head of gold. You are the king of kings. You, you, you rule over the people of every language. And God, the God of heavens, the God who has revealed this wisdom to me, the God that your sorcerers, magicians, astrologers, soothsayers, and Chaldeans do not have access to, that God has revealed this to me, and that same God has given you this authority. You are the king over all kings. But you are the king over all kings by the will of the God of kings. And he has invested you with this amazing authority. And you are the head of gold on this amazing statue, this amazing colossus. But after you will come another lesser kingdom, hence the gold to silver. And this kingdom will succeed you. This, this kingdom will take over and be the next in line. And we know that that kingdom is the Medo-Persian kingdom, right? The, the Persians and King Cyrus is going to come after Nebuchadnezzar and they are going to defeat the Babylonians and then they are going to reign and to rule. But after them will come another. And that kingdom will be the kingdom of the Greeks. This is the kingdom of Alexander the Great who then takes over the Persians. He, he conquers the Persians and he conquers basically the whole known world. He, he, want, he gets all the way out to India and he, he wants to keep going, but his men literally, I mean, literally say, we're done. We're, we're, take us home. And he, he guilts them into going one step further. They go into India 
and then basically his his leaders tell him, hey, I, really, we got to get back. And so they turn around and they begin to head back. And he dies before he even makes it back home. He Alexander the Great only reigns for 10 years. He dies at the age of like 32. Um, he, he becomes king at 22. His, his father dies, is killed at his sister's wedding, if I remember right. And Alexander takes over. And in 10 years, he conquers the whole world. He's unbelievable. And he spreads Greek culture all over the world. But, but he takes, he defeats the great powers of the world. He takes over Egypt. He takes over Persia. And again, he's ready to go all the way to China. Just keep going until the world ends. And he stops and comes back and dies. And then his kingdom kind of fractures. He doesn't have any sons. His kingdom fractures. He, it's, it's given to his generals, to three generals. And they try to rule each of them, rule a section, the, the Middle East, Egypt, and like Greece and Macedonia. And that's fine. They're kind of all holding their own little uh, kingdoms together until the fourth kingdom arises, the legs of iron. And, of course, that's Rome. And Rome, with its legs of iron, just tramples over the, over the earth. I mean, they, they just force their will upon people. And, and if you know anything about Roman history, you know, the Romans are impressive because of their perseverance, they're not impressive because, like, they never lost. They lost a lot. It's just that they never died. They never gave up. They just wore you down. They crushed you into the dirt. Like, they go fight the Greeks in southern Italy when they're taking over all of Italy. And they go down and fight the Greeks. The Greeks had, had colonies in southern Italy. They basically possessed southern Italy. And as Rome was beginning to grow and form its republic... They went to war with the Greeks. And I mean, they lost, and they lost, and they lost, and then they won. And they faced the Carthaginians in the Carthaginian Wars, the Punic Wars, and they lost, and they lost, and lost amazing amounts of men, and they lost, and they lost, and then they won. The, the Greeks, uh, the, the, the Romans weren't pretty about it, you know, the, if you will. The, think about the iron. It's the... It's the, the basis of all the, the metals just listed, but it's strong. It's strong. And the Romans basically crush the world and begin and dominate it. They form this amazing empire. And then even if you go look in the book of Revelation, as Rome is detailed, you know, they start sapping the world of its resources, right? All the resources kind of come back to Rome and supply the, the, the great city of Rome. And so Rome is a mighty, a mighty empire. Maybe the strongest of all, the four of them. But Rome had a problem. Its feet were clay. Right? That's the problem with this statue. So we've got this single statue kind of representing these four successive empires. That it is interesting that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, they're not four statues. It's one statue. That somehow... In, in the vision that Daniel or that Nebuchadnezzar gets and that Daniel is able to see and interpret, that there is an interconnectedness between these four empires that really defeat each other. I mean, the, the, the Persians defeat the Babylonians, the Greeks defeat the Persians, the Romans defeat the Greeks, and so forth. And yet, even though they are succeeding one another, in the vision Nebuchadnezzar gets and Daniel interprets, they're really one. They're just one thing. They're this kingdom of man. They are the pinnacle, if you will. 
all four of them, different varieties, making up this amazing, colossal power of Babel. Think of the Tower of Babel, right? That will reach to the heavens, make a name for ourselves. They together represent this colossal kingdom of man, the best man can do. Just put them all together and see what you have. You have this amazing powerhouse of a kingdom. But at its very base, there's a weakness. The feet of the thing are not iron. The feet are iron but impure, mixed with clay. It's weak. It, it's, Daniel interprets it as it's, it's partly strong and partly weak. It's partly united and partly divided. That even as Rome brings this amazing group together, somehow it's not cohesive. It's held together by the firmness of Rome's hand, but it's always got this susceptibility to fraying and to falling apart. And we know that eventually it does, right? I mean, the, the, the barbarian tribes of the north, right? The, the, the Germanic tribes, will eventually just come down and literally cut its legs out from underneath them. Rome will, Rome, this amazing, this amazing beastly statue just kind of you know, topples down over time and, and the, the barbarians sack Rome in 410. And then from 410 to basically 500, at least the Western part of Rome just sort of fizzles and crumbles away like the witch in, in, uh, you know, in the Wizard of Oz when it just kind of melts away. And, and that's Rome. It just kind of crumbles away and blows away in the wind. And next thing you know, it's just gone. And now the amazing Rome is broken up into these barbarian, oops, these barbarian tribes that take over. Um, take over the world, take over Europe at that time. Now, that's the statue that Daniel sees, and he describes that, and we can see. Now, here we are. We stand. Nebuchadnezzar is on the front end. He, it, that almost doesn't make any sense to him. In fact, he's just told, this is, a, this is a truth about the latter days. Nebuchadnezzar heard one thing, and that was, that was the end of it for him, right? What, Daniel, what, what Nebuchadnezzar heard was, I'm the head of gold. He's like, okay, that's all I need to hear. I don't know what comes after me, but I'm the head of gold. That's really awesome. We got a long way to go before this whole thing crumbles. But there's more to this vision, of course. And it's really, we've got to work through all that to get to, for Daniel, and Daniel, I don't, I don't even think could really understand at this point what's going on. But we've got to work our way to the end of this vision because it's the most important thing. And the most important thing is that the statue has the feet of clay, but what brings the statue down, we're told, are not the Germanic barbarians, right? What brings the statue down is a little stone. It's, it's not called this, it's, it's not saying, and then a mountain collided into the, the statue. No, no, the mountain doesn't collide. It's not, okay, we have this mighty colossus, and then another mighty colossus came and confronted, and there was this epic showdown, and then, you know, the one colossus defeated the other colossus. That would be interesting. Like, if, if it was said that way, we would, we would be like, okay, that makes sense, but that's not how the vision goes. It, it's something very anticlimactic. You've got this amazing colossal statue, and what takes it down is a small stone. The stone comes to the statue and hits the statue in its toes. And the statue begins to crack and crumble and down it goes and whew, out into the dust. And then 
the little stone begins to grow and becomes a mountain of its own and becomes a kingdom that will never be overcome. A kingdom in which there will be no succession. There will be no after them. It is just a mountain of power. And of course, this brings us to the story that even Daniel couldn't quite comprehend, but that is important for us. Like, I, I, I do think to myself, why was Nebuchadnezzar given this vision? Like, almost none of it really applied to him, except the fact that you're going to die and, and your kingdom is going to be short-lived. It's going to be replaced by a silver kingdom by the Persians. But this big story, this whole narrative, had very little to do with Nebuchadnezzar. But this story, this vision is given to Nebuchadnezzar so that Daniel can interpret it. And in Daniel interpreting it, the exiles of Israel in Babylon could see it and be encouraged by it. And so that we could be encouraged by it. That in some sense, to live in exile, you must know the, the arc of the narrative. It's important for you in the, because by the way, life, having interpreted this, life is going to quickly get better for Daniel. He's going to be promoted. He's going to be like Joseph, right? Who also interpreted uh, dreams for Pharaoh. Daniel is uh, like Joseph, bang, promoted, boom, right hand man. But life doesn't really get that much easier for Daniel very long because he's going to find himself in trouble. He's still living in exile. He's still going to have troubles. And when the Israelites in exile, if they're able to hear this, wow, what an encouragement to know that their guy has now the ear of the king. The king, when he hears this, falls on his face before Daniel. He worships Daniel, basically bestows gifts and honors to him, acknowledges that his God is God over all the gods of Babylon. It's an incredible declaration. Not sure it's a conversion, but at least it's a recognition. Like, hey, what can I say? You know, your God, your God did this. But nonetheless, nonetheless, they're in exile. So what is the point? What are we to take from this vision and I think it's this. You have the history of the world. If we look at the big story of the world, it turns out, just like in the Garden of Eden, when God said to Adam and Eve, and I will put enmity between your seed, you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That in some sense, we can look at the whole story of the world as the battle of the seeds as the battle of two powers, the city of man, as Augustine said, and the city of God. The colossal statue, the Tower of Babel, great Nebuchadnezzar, this, the empire of Rome, all the would-be powers that rage, think of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and plot against the Lord? Why do they conspire against him? The Lord in heaven laughs upon his throne. You've got the nations on the one hand. You've got the city of man on the one hand. You've got the seed of the serpent on the one hand. You've got man in his idolatrous quest for power and his desire to be great, his desire to be God on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have the seed of a woman. You have Christ. The true image of the invisible God the one who did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and becoming man who was obedient unto death, even the humiliating death of the cross, who knew what it meant to be the image of God and humbled himself to receive it rather than these would-be, you know, seizures of God's power. I will be God my own way. That in some sense, what we see in Daniel's vision is the whole world, the whole story of the world is the story of these two competing powers. And they don't look like two big, as one preacher said, two, you know, a battle of the, in the movie Transformers where like two big Transformers come against each other and are battling. It is a Transformer. It's a big, colossal power and a little insignificant stone that no one can take credit for because the stone was not hewn by man. Yet the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It has, it has, in its humble way, taken down the entire statue, exposed the weakness of this idolatrous powerhouse, and brought it down and turned it to dust with everything else vaporized. And yet, the stone that the builders rejected has indeed not just been victorious and is now the stone of stones. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone of a new building. Of of something that's greater than a colossus, of this mighty mountain that from this stone now grows an empire, a kingdom of glory based on the foundation, the cornerstone of this humble, suffering servant, even Jesus Christ. And the question for us is, what do you want to be part of? What do you want to be part of? See, the the colossal power is awesome. It's appealing. It's intimidating. But it's seducing. It calls you to be loyal to it. It threatens you to be loyal to it. This is what we see in the book of Revelation, the idea of the beast. And we're going to get to that vision too from Daniel. But this is what that's tapping into. That's intimidating. Nebuchadnezzar is struck to the core by this image, by the worldly powers that rise up and raise their fists against the Lord and demand that everybody bow before them. It's very tempting to want to succumb to that and to be part of that, to find your identity in that. When the other option is a little insignificant, unattractive, unadorned, maybe even unnoticed stone, where are you gonna stake your claim? Where are you going to to, to stake your name? With that? with this and Daniel is given the gift to interpret this for his people right in exile to call them again to know the story that they're living in so that they place their hope and their confidence in the right place hey why do the nations rage 
and plot in vain against the Lord. The Lord who in his heaven is in heaven laughs at them. He sets his king, his anointed on his holy hill. He says, this is my son. Don't be distracted here. This is my son. To you, he says, you just ask me, son. This is all in Psalm 2. Ask me, son, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. You will dash them to pieces with a rod of iron. You will break them like pots of clay. So what's the call to us in Psalm 2? Therefore, kiss the son, lest you perish in the way. Do not be distracted by the colossal momentary glory of the statue. But place your hope here in the stone which the builders rejected. Jesus, and hence the, the New Testament reading this morning in Matthew 28. When Jesus is buried, seeming like the beast with the iron legs, alas, has crushed him as well. Conspiring, mingling, if you will, the iron with the clay, with the, with the Jews. I'm not saying that's the interpretation, but nonetheless, the Jews and the Romans conspire together to crush Jesus, and they do apparently crush him and put him in the ground. They turn him to dust, they think. But as Jesus comes forth from the grave, that coming forth from the grave is the stone striking the foot of the beast. And from that moment, the destiny of the Colossus is absolutely certain. It is bound to fall. Its days are numbered. And hence, he meets his disciples there in Matthew 28, and he says, now, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Can you imagine? What an audacious claim. Here you are. You were just hanging on a cross. You were, as, you were just buried in the ground. You were you literally as low as you can go. A little tiny stone who now stands in the face of the colossal power of Rome, who, by the way, is not yet peaked in its authority and glory. Right? It's, it's right there at the peak, just coming to it. And in the face of this colossus, this little stone, rejected by all, can say, now all authority in heaven and earth, authority over Rome, authority over Greece, authority over Persia, authority over Nebuchadnezzar, authority over America, authority over the EU, authority over China, authority over Russia, Authority over all has been, not will be certainly, has been given to me. Therefore, go and watch the mountain grow. Go and watch the stone become a mountain. And brothers and sisters, that's what you and I are a part of. And yet still, we can find ourselves attracted to the statue. Right? We can still find ourselves attracted to the worldly powers, the quest for power, to gain power and wisdom the way the world does. But Daniel's vision challenges us to see the end of things, the latter days, the way it all shakes out. And in the end, all the glittering, gleaming, amazing demonstrations of power and ability and wisdom and wealth 
of our age in the end vaporizes and ends up as dust. So don't be attracted to it. Don't cling to it. Don't tether yourself to that statue. Rather, fix yourself to the stone, the stone that is even now becoming a mountain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is truly the King of Kings. Though Nebuchadnezzar could be called such for a time, his power was truly awesome in that moment in time. But Father, not in comparison to yours, not in comparison to Christ's. Impressive by worldly standards, but insignificant compared to your glory. Therefore, guard us, we pray, lest we be wooed by the powers of this age. Fix our hope upon the rock that the builders in the world reject, but which you have made the chief cornerstone, the rock and foundation of your church, upon which you are forming a mighty mountain, a kingdom that will last into all eternity while the kingdoms and powers of this age will be turned to dust. Thank you, we pray, and give you praise for giving our hearts, giving us hearts that see Christ as King, who can see past the facades of this age and put our hope in Him. Strengthen us that we might be obedient in our time of exile, for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.